Well, our desire at Wetaskiwin Mission Church is that everything we do is derived from God's Word. Um, we always, as a church, when we consider what sort of activities we want to be involved in, what sort of ministries we want to do, we always want to be taking our cues from Him. We are the people of God. Jesus Christ is our Lord. He is our leader. He is the head of the church. And God has revealed His will for our church in the pages of His Word. And that's where we want to turn now. But before we do that, again, let's go to the Lord and ask him to help us as we look to him. Father God, this has has been an encouraging and uplifting time together. We have worshipped with your people in your presence. And we recognize that it is you who unites us together with one another through our Lord Jesus Christ. You have joined us to Christ and you have joined us to one another. And even as we are joined to Christ and to one another, we're about to see that we're privileged to be joined together also in our suffering. And so God, I pray now that you would help us and that you would guide us through your spirit, apply your word to our hearts so that we can together serve you more effectively, love one another more effectively, pray more effectively, and so that we can be a light to the world We pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're looking this morning at 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 to 19. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 to 19. So if you have your Bibles with you, and I always encourage you to bring your Bible if you have one. If you don't have one, we always like to have a short supply. It's getting shorter all the time. We need to probably replenish our supply of Bibles, but there should be a few in the chair racks in front of you. And encourage you to take those and turn to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. If you're using those Bibles, that's on page 1016, very close to the end of those Bibles. But this here is a word to the beloved. This is a word to us collectively as a church. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So reads the word of God. Well, this has been an exciting service. Our fall kickoff is kind of like, uh, think of it as sort of our church pep rally. It's kind of where we want to get everyone fired up about our church and have you all get excited about what's going on here. 
And of course, the way to have the best desired effect for the church is to commit what's happening here to God. So that's what we have tried to do this morning. We want you to feel good about our church. We want you to feel good about the potential for serving one another, for the potential that we have for serving our community. Yet now, we have the pastor come and read a passage like this, where it says we're going to encounter fiery trials. We're going to be insulted. Judgment starts at the household of God. Sign up for that. And the predominant word in this passage was suffer and suffering. We've got everyone all excited to sign up, and then I hit you with this. (laughs) What gives? Well, the short answer is that we've landed here as we've been working our way through 1 Peter verse by verse. So you could say, in some respects, that this was bad planning on my part. I should have planned to be at a more positive section for our fall kickoff, such as the section that I read earlier that we covered last week. We talked about loving one another and serving one another. Why this section on suffering? And, truth be told, I originally did try to time it so we would land on 7 to 11 this Sunday, but I changed one message and included a little bit of a, previous, of a following message in the previous one, and everything sort of moved up. So this is where we are. But as I've thought about this section, it's actually a very good word for us on this particular Sunday. This is a good word for us. This is a needed word for us on fall kickoff Sunday. For one thing, it just highlights the reality of life as a Christian. And one great thing about the Bible is that the Bible never sugarcoats the Christian life. The Christian life in this world, which is not our home, in which we live as exiles, includes suffering. The Christian life includes suffering. The reality is this, we are not in heaven yet. We still live with the presence of sin. We live with the presence of sins in our own lives, and that's hard enough. Chapter 2, verse 11, talks about the passions of the flesh that wage war against our soul. A war going on inside, and we definitely see the effects of sin in the world, in this world that we inhabit. But for a second thing, this passage is actually not really a downer at all. It's actually a very encouraging section. This passage is encouraging in that it shoots straight. But it should also excite us. This passage actually fits with our pep rally intentions. It should serve to fire you up to serve in the church. This passage is filled with promises from God. Promises for good things even as our church, even as we Christians, exist in a world that doesn't share our Christian values. You see, when I read this passage, what jumped out is those references to suffering and trials and insults and judgment. That is very obvious in this passage. But if you look a little closer, what's maybe a little bit more hidden in there are also words like rejoice and be glad. You are blessed. Glory. And the other aspect of this passage that's maybe a little bit more hidden is that this is talking to all of us collectively. You see it there in that term, the household of God, in verse 17. But everything here, all the verbs in this section, are plural. You don't always see that in English because it just translates 
This is my grammar lesson. The second person plural as you. So you could mean in English, could mean you individually, or you all, collectively. That's probably a better way to think of it. Think of the fact that you might be in the south here. This is, when it says you, it means y'all, you all. And it shows, and it's like that seven times in verses 12 to 14. Whenever you see that word, you, in those first three verses that I read, think of it in the plural. It's talking to the church. It's talking to a collection of Christians. And here's why that's important for us as we think about the fact that when we are saved, that God places believers into a church. The Christian life was never meant to be lived apart from the church. It wasn't meant to be a sort of a lone ranger religion. This matters because, yes, the reality is that the Christian life is difficult and hard. We can't sugarcoat that. That's a reality. Jesus even predicted that. He, he, he told us it would be like, like this, so there's no surprise that way. It's a fact. And don't let anyone ever tell you different. We have the prosperity gospel that's rampant today all over the world that seems to tell you different. But God wants us to deal with these difficulties, these sufferings, these hardships, these insults. He wants us to deal with them together. Together. In the context of the church. When suffering happens because of our sinful passions, God wants us to wage that war that's going on in our souls in the context of the church. It's a private battle that ought to be fought publicly as we ask one another for help, confess our sins to one another, and so on, pray for one another. But also, the suffering that we face because we're trying to be good Christians in the world, it's God's will that we should deal with suffering together as a church, as fellow targets of the world's hostilities, if you want to put it that way. We share in Christ's sufferings, verse 13, but suffering is one thing that we all should have in common if we suffer for the right things, if we do the right things, if we confess the right things. Peter's basically writing and saying suffering or insults are what you can expect from the world. Don't be surprised. And don't let those sufferings, those hardships in the Christian life, let you want to bail out on Christianity. Hang in there. But you don't have to hang in there on your own. That's the encouragement. Look to Jesus and run to God's people. Suffer together. Suffer together. And here's the thing. When we suffer together, we are all in it together. We can enjoy, as it were, the, the fellowship of the suffering. And that should serve to encourage us all and you as you face the world. So we should expect suffering, yes. But when we suffer together as Christians, we can also expect that those difficulties can lead to joy and gladness and blessing and glory and honor. There's suffering in this passage. That can be disconcerting. That might make you fearful. That might discourage you. But Peter does not want to leave us discouraged. He actually wants us here to, to leave this passage encouraged. So let's look at these encouraging promises that can pep us up in the midst of our suffering. Peter starts by reminding us not to be surprised by fiery trials when they come upon us to test us, as though something strange were happening to us. I remind you that suffering in 1 Peter is not talking so much about 
uh, a physical persecution. It's not talking so much about being thrown in prison. It's not talking so much about the physical illnesses that we have to endure. In 1 Peter, it's talking about stuff that people say, or in our days, that people might write about Christians. Think of it as verbal persecution. That's what's, what Peter's addressing here. Verbal persecution just for being a Christian, even while we try to do good to others. Did you see the news about um, the U.S. chicken fast food restaurant as it opened its first store in Toronto on Friday? This franchise is known for being generous and for offering help during times of tragedy, often during a um, a natural disaster or a, you know, a shooting in a school or something that happens, often this chain will come in and provide food for all those that are, that are grieving and all those that are, that are just wondering what's going on. It's known for being generous, but it's also known for its Christian values. Even though those values never prohibit anyone from coming in and eating at that particular fast food restaurant. In fact, the Toronto franchise owner said, our focus is on offering a welcoming and respectful environment for our guests. So that all sounds good. Sounds like a good place. But for the grand opening in Toronto, as people were lining up to eat there the night before already, there was also a number of other people lining up, a number of activists who started protesting protesting, demonstrating, saying that this chain promotes hate and discrimination. And the only reason they did that, because back seven years ago in 2012, the the president, the owner of the franchise, spoke in favor of, quote, the biblical definition of a family unit. The biblical definition of a family union. Preposterous, isn't it? It was that comment seven years ago that had a few people accusing this chain of promoting hate and actually stopping, trying to stop people from eating at the restaurant. Some of them were holding what's called a die-in. They were just sort of laying there with, with um, well, I won't even say what the sign said. Now, we might be surprised at that and shocked. We might think it's strange. I mean, I thought it's strange. Frankly, I was more embarrassed to be Canadian <laughs> than surprised by the accusation. Peter says, don't be surprised. He actually says these kinds of accusations are from God and that these kinds of accusations actually have a good purpose, which is to test us, which is to test us. And then he puts those kinds of accusations in perspective by saying when, we, when those kinds of trials come, we can actually rejoice insofar as we share Christ's sufferings. Why? So again, that you may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. There's the promise. It's all connected to Jesus. When Christians get a bad rap from protesters and from the media who bend over backwards to report on these protesters, even though it might just be a few people, it leads to our joy. Now that incident in Toronto is a bit more distant from us. It doesn't involve us directly. But sometimes those accusations might come toward you. And when that happens... It's not fun. It's hard. That's the reality. It might do harm to your good name. It might do harm to your credibility. It might 
do harm to our, our reputation as Christians. It might even result in the loss of a job. And to the extreme, it might even result, as it has in different places, in a lawsuit. But Peter's saying that down deep, you can actually smile on the inside. You can smile on the inside. Why? Because in a small way, you share in Christ's sufferings, and you know he made it through that suffering, and he came out the other side. And will really rejoice and be glad in the future when his glory is revealed. This is a promise of present and future joy as we suffer together. We can rejoice now, and we will rejoice later in our suffering. Second, verse 14, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Doesn't that seem counterintuitive? How, How does that even make sense? We either insult someone or we bless someone. We can't do both at the same time. But how can, we, how can an insult be a blessing? Well, God specializes in things that don't make sense. God is glorified by, by things that make no logical sense to humans. In fact... He preached an entire sermon on that, the, the, the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus preached in Matthew 5-7. to Jesus basically turns everything that we would expect on its head, including these words from Matthew 5, 11, verse 12. And just remember, Peter was part of the crowd as Jesus said this, and he almost says exactly the same thing here. Matthew 5, verses 11 and 12, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you, and utter, so speak, all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. He says, rejoice and be glad. Why? Because your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Actually goes right back to the first point, doesn't it? Rejoice and be glad. But Jesus says, we are blessed when people insult us. Or when they utter all kinds of evil about us. They mean to curse us, and God turns that around and uses it as a blessing for us. Uses it to bless us. How can that be a blessing? End of verse 14. You are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. The spirit of glory and of God is resting on you when you are insulted. And that is a blessing. As we suffer and as we gather together to support each other and encourage each other, we can know for sure that the Spirit of glory and of God, in other words, the Holy Spirit, rests upon us. We might have insults flying at us from every direction. That can be chaotic. It can throw us from a loop. It can even tempt us to want to fight back. But this is an image of rest and peace, an image of refreshing and and relief. So the world might think it's throwing us into turmoil, that's upsetting us when they hurl insults at us, but we can be encouraged that when insults come flying in from every direction, God's presence, God's glory, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, a peace is resting upon us. It's a great image. It just sort of seems to calm everything down and put everything in perspective for us, doesn't it? 
insults can be a blessing. The next promise there is in verses 15 and 16. Look there again. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. We saying here that we always need to sort of evaluate why things are hard when they're hard. Always need to evaluate why people are insulting us. The reality is uh, the church and Christians that make up the church aren't yet perfected. So we still sin. And we can expect to suffer to some degree. Whether it's blatant or public sins like murder or stealing or doing evil or even meddling. The whole range of sins. We have to think about whether we're complicit in any of those things, whether something we did caused some of that suffering, whether we brought it upon ourselves. Peter's pushing us here towards godliness. He wants to make sure that when we suffer, we suffer for the name of Christ. In verse 14, when we get insulted, are we doing it because we're doing good, even though we're doing good and respecting other people? Or are we bringing it upon ourselves? But if it is for the former, if we are suffering for the name of Christ, if that's the case, we will, verse 16, not be ashamed. That's God's promise. If we get publicly maligned for doing God's will, for simply following Jesus, we do not need to be ashamed. And the opposite of shame is what? Honor. When we suffer for Christ, we receive honor. We might be shamed by the world. We but we are honored when we suffer for being a Christian. People have been trying to shame the church right from the very beginning. This is nothing new. In fact, in Acts 5, the early church was feeling this kind of shame and rejection. At one point, the apostles, including Peter, who's writing our letter, of course, are put in a public prison. They're put in a public prison, and it's public just so that they can be shamed in front of everyone. And then they have a public trial, it says. And eventually they do get released, but not before they get beat up and told not to speak in the name of Jesus. But when they sort of take a step back and they sort of assess what happened there, and assess all of that, evaluate all of it, they say this in Acts 5, verse 41. Acts 5, verse 41. You might want to turn there and and highlight uh, this verse somehow or or write it down and, and, uh, and just keep it as a bookmark. It says they left the presence of the council, having been beaten up, having been flogged. They left the presence of the council, listen to this, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Last thing they were was ashamed. They were not ashamed. They found worth and honor because they were privileged to suffer dishonor and shame for the name of Jesus. That's radical. And what kind of response did they have after this public shaming? It says they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer. They worshipped. In fact, you remember the other, later on in Acts, Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas, when they're in prison, what are they doing? They're singing. They're singing. They're rejoicing. Found worth and honor because they were privileged to suffer dishonor and shame for the name of Jesus. 
rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer. Back in 1 Peter 4, verse 16, it says, Let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. As a church, we just need to know that greater shame leads to greater worship. Greater shame leads to greater worship. Greater suffering leads to more enthusiastic praise, does it not? Why? Because we get to suffer. We get to suffer suffer together for the name of Christ. But make sure you're doing it for Christ. So suffering can come partly from the fact that Christians face rejection from the social group that's in the world. For some of you, you might think back and know that your pre-Christian life was marked by a different kind of social group. Marked by friendship with non-Christians. That was your social life. And you were accepted there in that circle. But now that you confess to be a Christian, those same, very same people might not treat you the same way. They might not want to socialize you. In fact, they might reject you and shame you. But the good news is that you found acceptance in a new social group. You have found acceptance in a new social group. You're not rejected by everyone. God has placed you into a church. You have an entirely new social life, one in which you find acceptance. You might be shamed by that old group, but you're honored in your new family. Well, Peter wants to encourage us in one more way there in verses 17 and 18. Here, we can see that he focuses in on the church. He hones in on the church, on the household of God. And this doesn't seem at first to be an encouragement, does it? He writes, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. I think God's judgment starts with us? Wait a minute. Why? Well, we have to see here judgment as, see judgment as being just another word that Peter uses for suffering. It's a synonym in a way. This judgment is really God purifying his people, his church. This is God's discipline, we might call it. God disciplines those whom he loves. And that can feel to us like suffering. It can be unpleasant. But the reality is, is that it's a blessing from God himself. Hebrews 12, verse 11 says, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. It seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. To those who have been disciplined, there's long-term fruit, productivity, and, and, and we become better people because of God's discipline. We're formed into his image. So God is doing this work of purifying the church. Like I said before, the church has not yet been perfected, and so we sit under God's refining and purifying judgment, as it were. He is shaping us. He's refining us, Peter, saying that that then should encourage us. Especially when we compare it to God's judgment to the unrighteous. That is judgment. That is a condemning judgment that we do not have to face. We believe the gospel, so we see suffering as God's shaping us and preparing us for glory. We go into the furnace, but we come back out of the furnace. Kind of like Daniel's friends, remember that story? Looking better than when we came in, because God is there with us. God walks through us through that time of discipline and refining and carries us through and out. But for those who don't obey the gospel, God's fire of judgment is a consuming fire from which there is no release, from which there is no relief. 
we don't have to face that. Discipline, God's judgment to the household of God is for our good, for his glory. It's an act of love on his part. It shapes us, forms us. So for us, being part of the household of God, getting involved in the church is seldom a smooth path. It's hard work. It comes with a cost. We have to deal with our own sins and weaknesses, and we have to deal with the sins and weaknesses of other people whom we serve with. Other people are a part of our family. But I would encourage you to embrace that and to recognize that God will form you, God will shape you, God will conform you, and God is doing that same work in our church as he's purifying us. It often hurts, yes, but it's great to be inside the household of God and to not be on the outside looking in. The fact that judgment begins at the household of God is a sign that God cares for his family. He cares enough to conform us into the image of his son. So, I would encourage you today to give yourself to, to put it in terms of suffering, to spend yourself on the church. The world in which we live and move and breathe prizes and glorifies other pursuits. The world is going to say things to you like, uh, your time is precious, your free time is precious, your weekends are precious, especially Sundays. Make sure you leverage them, get everything you can out of them for yourself, for your family. And as a Christian, you're going to have to push back against that line of thinking. But remember, even though it might be hard, even though there will be a cost, it might cost you something, when you do a cost-benefit analysis, you will find that the cost is exceedingly worth it. The cost is exceedingly worth it. So as we start out a new ministry year, I would encourage you to spend yourself on the church. I would encourage you to spend yourself on the church. For each of you, that's going to look a little bit different. The varied grace that God has given us. So I would encourage you, go hunting and fishing, but not at the expense of the church. Put your children in hockey, put your children in dance, but not at the expense of the church. Prize the church. Prioritize the church. Love one another. Serve one another. This is the Christian life. And that may might not make sense to the people you interact with in the world. They might try to tell you it's a waste of your time. They might even ridicule you. They might say you're, you're crazy. And in our day and age especially, they might view you as joining up with some kind of religion that's non-inclusive, that's non-welcoming, that's non-affirming. But brother and sister Christian, it is worth it. It is worth it now, and it will be worth it in the end. Don't settle for less. When we suffer together according to God's will, verse 19, entrusting our souls, that's the part of, it, that part of us that lives forever. Profit is, is it if you gain the whole world, but forfeit your soul. Entrusting our souls to our faithful creator while doing good. We entrust our souls to the very one who created the entire world. How good is that? Sovereign God. Where better to entrust our souls than to our faithful, sovereign God? He is, and he is faithful to his people. He is faithful to his promises. He is to be trusted.
you can entrust yourselves to him, just like Christ entrusted himself to his Father while he suffered. Let us suffer together for the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you always talk to us straight. Thank you for telling us what we can expect when we follow Jesus. You hide nothing. You tell us that it's difficult. There's no surprises. There's no bait and switch. Even Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulation. So we should not be surprised when we suffer. We should not be surprised when we get insulted. Yet we do confess, I confess, that sometimes I'm fearful of suffering. I don't want it. I want to run from it. I want to avoid suffering. And often that results in just just trying to blend into our world, not trying to stand out, just trying to blend in. So this comes as a good word for us. This equips us and this helps us to know what to do when we face opposition. It reminds us to look to Christ. It reminds us that we can find refuge in your church with your people. And it reminds us that we can entrust ourselves to you. You who are described here, is described here as our faithful creator. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your son. Thank you for your people. And we pray now that you would bless our time together as we gather around these tables. Thank you for providing this bounty of food that so many have contributed to and prepared. We give you all the glory and all the honor. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I believe the tables are...